invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through 9-7, Isaiah 8, 1 through 9-7. This is God's good and kind word to you this morning. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meir Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebekiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meir Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people have refused the water of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remelah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far, far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents, in Israel, from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, who will chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. 
the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, for you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for again giving us your word so that we can see the truth of the glory of Jesus Christ. Even here in this passage written 800 years before his coming into the world. Father, we pray that you would encourage us today by the good news of Jesus Christ as you have taught it through your prophet Isaiah. We pray these things in Christ's name. I toyed around with a lot of different introductions this week, and I don't have a good introduction. I don't have a lot of time either. Uh, there's so much here. I want to just jump right into the Word. Last week, we saw the importance of faith and how it helps us see the world and respond to the world around us. This week, we're going to actually see how faith saves us. And in doing so, we're going to see three points. First, we're going to see who God saves. Secondly, we're going to see how God saves. And then thirdly, why God saves. So the first thing, who God saves. And you see this in, in 8, 1 through 8, and then in verses 11 through 9, 5. Who God saves. This is one of the most important questions that all religions attempt to answer. Who gets salvation? Different religions, of course, give different answers to this question. But generally speaking, there's only one answer. Most all of the world's religions tell us that good people are saved and bad people are condemned. And the major difference between, differences between the world's religions can be categorized essentially how they define good and bad. Judaism, as it was practiced by the Israelites in the Old Testament, eventually came to define good according to their Jewishness. If you were a Jew, either nationally or in religious practice, you were considered good and God would save you. In our passage, however, and remember this is one of the most important passages in all of Jewish scriptures, even to the Jews, in Isaiah, we are taught something completely different than what, uh, what Judaism taught and what the Jews thought was true, and we're taught something completely different than what most of the world religions say. 
Um, in this you see in, in 8, 1 through 8, that even the good Jews are subject to the condemnation of God. Just as the nations, the non-Jews, or the Gentiles were. Isaiah is commanded to write down his soon-to-be-born son's name on one of what amounted to a large billboard. And uh, that name is Meir uh, Shalal Hajbaz. And it literally means the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. Yahweh commanded him to write down this name and put it on this billboard in public view years before the Assyrians swept through Judah. Isaiah obediently wrote down this prophecy and he placed it in public view as a way to remind the Judeans that they had rejected Yahweh. In Isaiah's telling, the Judeans refused the gentle and peaceful waters of essentially Yahweh, and that's what you see there in uh, verse 6, because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, uh, essentially saying the waters that Yahweh had provided, the gentle, peaceful, calm, cool waters of Yahweh, they had rejected. And they had instead decided to go to the violent and chaotic waters. Uh, they chose the waters of resin, which ultimately meant they chose the waters of Assyria. And in a few years, when the Assyrians showed up and began looting them, they would look up, they would see this large billboard with this prophecy on it, and they would know why they were being looted, why they were being punished. And then further, Yahweh gives here not just one picture like a flood water, but two pictures uh, of judgment in this passage. Again, the first one is the flood water, the flood waters of the Euphrates River where the Assyrians dwelt and they're attacking and overcoming uh, the Israelites. But the second picture is found a little bit further in verse 14 where we're told about the rock, this rock that comes that crushes people that get in its way. Once again, we see that even God's people, those that are Jews nationally in verse 14, will be swept away and they will be crushed in judgment. So the Bible teaches us that good and bad are not the categories that God uses in order to save people. If they were, no one would be worthy of salvation. This is the exact same argument that Paul makes in Romans 1 through 3 that culminates in Romans 3.23 where he says, All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. The point is that God does not save the good and give contempt and condemn the bad. Because all sin, all are bad. All are subject to the flood and crushing weight of God's judgment. And yet, in this passage, we're told that some people are preserved through that judgment and are saved. Who are those people that are not crushed or swept away? They are the few that have placed their faith in Yahweh. You see this subtly in verses 5 and 6. Look there in verses 5 and 6. The Lord spoke to me again because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh. 
are the people that God used to call my people, but he is now not identifying with them any longer. They are not his people. They are this people. These people, this people, who formerly were his people, have placed their faith in Rezin, king of Syria. They have given their trust, their hope, and their future into the hands of a sinful earthly ruler. And furthermore, we're told that they actually rejoice in Rezin, having rejected Yahweh. And then in verses 11 through 15, God commands Isaiah to be different. He says, be different from this people. Isaiah is not to rejoice in human leaders, neither is he to fear or to be terrified of human leaders. He is to fear and be terrified of Yahweh only. That's interesting to me that he is told, here's where salvation lies, fearing the Lord. How is Isaiah to do this? He is to do this by regarding Yahweh and only Yahweh as holy. Here's the point. Those that fear in Yahweh and regard Him as holy are saved. Yahweh protects them by bringing them into His sanctuary. And you see that in verse 14 again. But the same sanctuary that saves the one crushes those that do not trust in Yahweh. Please don't miss this point. The one that saves is the one that crushes. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense. He's both a sanctuary and a crushing stone. Now here's the good news. God doesn't save good people and he doesn't save his own people. You get that? God doesn't save good people, and he doesn't save his own people. He saves those who are helpless, who know they can't save themselves. He saves those who regard him as holy and fear him. God doesn't save the best and the brightest, those that work really hard and merit it, those that are able to do great things for God and accomplish wonderful things in this life, God doesn't do that. Eternal life is not a meritocracy where the best and the brightest get in. No, it's the opposite. The only ones who are able to get into heaven are those that cannot merit it, that demerit it, and they know it. That's good news for us. Who does God save? God saves those that do not merit, but actually demerit that salvation. That's who God saves. Secondly, how does God save? We see this in verses, or in chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, and then also in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. I say, uh, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. God's salvation is accomplished in unexpected and surprising ways. And the first unexpected thing that we see in this passage is that God saves in an unexpected location. And you see that beginning in 9.1. There's a great climax in this passage in 9.1. Right before, now you need to know the context. Right before 9.1, Yahweh is announcing doom and gloom and death and treachery on those that look 
to the earth or created things for their salvation. But then, once again, in 9.1, you see this. But there will be no gloom for her that was in anguish. Isaiah makes a sharp turn, a 180-degree turn, away from doom and gloom to a great light. Here's how he announces that. In Zebulun and Naphtali, better known to us as the region of Galilee, the Savior is going to come. Now the land of Zebulun and Naphtali usually received the worst of any invasion from outside invading armies and nations because they rested on a major ancient highway called, and you see it here in this passage, the Way of the Sea the road of the sea. You see that in verse 1. It ran right in between these two tribal lands. And so invading armies would invade down this highway. They would ravage these lands first on the way in and then on the way out of Israel. And they did it creating anguish along the way. But it's right there in that area of anguish, the region that was used to the worst gloom and darkness that Yahweh would begin his work of salvation. It is an unexpected location for the, for the Savior to come. But next, I want you to see that God saves through an unexpected person. Before we're told much about who the Savior is, we're told what he's going to do in verses 2 through 5 here in, in 9. In verses 2 through 5 it says this, he will bring light to darkness. He will break the bonds of oppression. He's going to get rid of the military and bloodshed, and he will bring peace. And all of these things are going to be accomplished by, wait for it, an unexpected Savior, a child. In verse 6. Throughout these verses, we are told that the Savior is going to be one of strength, of power, of wisdom, of peace, and of steadiness. Now think for a moment about children and what children were like. Are those the qualities that you give to children? Are they strong and powerful, wise, peaceful, and steady? Certainly not. But this unexpected Savior, this child, will have those qualities. And we're told that the government will rest upon this small child's shoulders. And that his government will last forever and ever and ever. Furthermore, in a very famous passage, we're told that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, but he also will be called Mighty God. Do you see that? This Savior, a male child, will be born and will be God. Yahweh is telling his people that he is going to come. He is, once again, Emmanuel, God with us. This unexpected Savior comes to an unexpected location to save. And as we saw a moment ago, 
and unexpected people, not the good. How does God save? God saves people of faith, not by shows of power and might, but by demonstrations of weakness and humility. The warrior will be defeated, will, will, uh, will defeat, I'm sorry, but not with sword or with bow, but with sacrifice. The enemy of God's people will be destroyed in the most unexpected way possible. And that needs to change our posture as Christians. Paul reminds us we do not boast in our strength or our accomplishments. In Romans 3.27, he says, Our boasting about ourselves is eliminated through this salvation that he gives. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, if we're going to boast in anything, then as Christians, as God's people, as his saved people, we boast in our weaknesses, not in what we've done or our strengths. Because God saves us in this way, Christians are to be humble and meek. So we see there, secondly, how God saves. But then finally, why God saves. Why does God do these things? And you see it in chapter 9, verse 7, at the very end. Why? I love that question. And I know that question frustrates so many of us, especially as you hear a child ask that question, why, over and over and over. But when I have to hear that question, I get excited. There's no more exciting question to me. And I recognize even as I get excited about it, that it is an impossibly hard question to answer for most of the time. Why do things happen the way that they do? Why is the world the way that it is? Why? I don't know. But the question, why, always has an answer. Always has an answer. Even if the answer is, I don't know. That's a valid answer to that question. The world asks that question all the time, just like we do. And the world's answer to this question, why does God save, is basically, God saves you because you earn it. Because you've worked hard enough, God is required to save you. You have earned a spot on his team. You have made it worth God's while to call you to be on his team. This salvation, of course, is inherently selfish and therefore inherently impossible. You can once again look at Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4, verse 15, that the very act of trying to earn salvation inevitably alienates you from God even more. And that's why the world's answers to this and the world's religion's answer to how or why God saves ultimately is futile and useless. So if you can't be saved by earning it and God still saves some, then why does God save some? The answer is found at the very end in 9-7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That word zeal has many different synonyms and connotations. 
And we typically think of zeal as intense excitement, like rowdy LSU fans at kickoff. They are demonstrating their zeal toward their team. But biblical zeal, while it is intense excitement, is actually a form of another emotion. Zeal, traditionally and biblically, is strongly connected to jealousy. And there's a reason why zealous and jealous are spelled alike. In our context, in the world we live in today, jealousy is typically considered a negative thing. But the biblical writers, but to the biblical writers, jealousy, while it can be sinful, it's not inherently sinful. In fact, jealousy is an appropriate emotional response to certain sinful actions. And that's what we are shown here. That Yahweh will accomplish this salvation to an unexpected people in an unexpected place by an unexpected person because he is a jealous and a zealous God. And a simple search of the Old Testament reveals that this is an important and defining characteristic and description of Yahweh. And if you want a quick reference, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, you can look it up there. But what do the biblical writers mean when they say that Yahweh is jealous? And the word used here is a descriptive word that roughly translates to mean intensely red. That's what zealous means, to be intensely red, like an adoring husband who hears of his wife's infidelities. So God is an adoring husband, and he gets zealous and jealous over his bride. God has so directed his love and affection for his bride that nothing will be able to stand in the way of him saving his people. That is a powerful image and one that should encourage us. But I don't want us to believe that he is zealous for us because we deserve it. A husband isn't jealous for his cheating wife because she has earned it. No, there's something much greater going on. In a marriage, a husband and a wife have made commitments to each other. And the jealous husband goes after his wife to bring her back into his home in spite of her sin against him. Why? Because he has made a commitment to love her. God looks at us even as we have scorned his love, and he says, I'm going to fight for you because I love you, not because you love me. God is zealous over his commitments, his promise to be our God and to make us his people. In conclusion, let me say this. We began this sermon with a word of judgment once again but we end on the note of grace. Just as Paul says we are saved by faith through grace, so we see the same thing here in this passage. God saves us by faith through grace. You who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light, not because you earned it, not because you deserve it, not because you are worthy of being on God's team, but because he loved you 
and he has fought for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. Have you seen the great light? Jesus Christ is that light. He is the light of the world. And Isaiah told us that the unexpected Savior would come to an unexpected location, even to places like little old Clinton, Louisiana, Jesus Christ comes to an unexpected people, even you. Salvation is for all who have fallen on the rock of Jesus Christ for their sanctuary. Friends, fall on Jesus, for you will be crushed by him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this word today, and we pray that you would help us to see even more clearly the glory of Jesus Christ in it. Lord, we again thank you for the light of the world that came into the world so that we could be rescued from the darkness of our sin. Help us to continually grow in the grace of Jesus Christ if we know him. And if not, maybe today you would transform someone's heart once again by your grace. Lord, again, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we pray in Christ's name.